The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are only those of the participants and not necessarily those of Village Presbyterian Church or the PCUSA. Welcome to Millennial Ministry, the podcast for young adults for Village Presbyterian Church. With us, as normal, is Trenton. Hey, hey. Hallie. Hello. And then we have <laughs> Brandon Frick, the site pastor from Village Presbyterian Church on Antioch, or if you listened to the last one, uh, from the south, right? That is correct. Out south. Out south. <laughs> So we are here to talk about confessions. Yes. So we've spent this fall confessing. Sounds a lot more risque than it has been. Uh, But we are looking mostly at our ancient confessions, our uh, book of confessions for the Presbyterian Church that um, is mostly historic. Uh, But we are spending the end of the series talking about if we are confessional, it means that we are not done confessing, that we're continually building into this body of uh, saying what we believe in specific times and places. And so we're looking at one of our modern confessions, um, not in the Book of Order, but being used to inform us and guide us in these days. Uh, and it is called the Sarasota Statement. And the Reverend Dr. Brandon Frick is with us today because he was part of writing this statement. And uh, we want him to just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so the first question is, what is the Sarasota Statement? I assume Sarasota is meaningful in some some way. Or you just tossed a dart at a board and then picked it that way. <laughs> yeah, it was January when we wrote it and we thought... Well, it needs to be someplace warm, so no, huh? So I'll tell you the story. I had an opportunity uh, a few months before we actually wrote the statement to take part in the pastoral development seminar at First Presbyterian Church in Sarasota, Florida. Had a great experience there, wonderful folks. Uh, senior pastor there is Glenn Bell. And uh, right around the same time, I had written an article for the Presbyterian Outlook saying that we needed a a new confession, that we needed a confession that could actually use the language um, of today and address some of the things going on in our world now. Um, Our latest confession, uh, we hadn't even adopted Belhar at that point, um, but even then our our latest confession was just outdated. It didn't give us the language that we needed, and so I just spent some time thinking through that. And then everything started changing in the fall of 2016, um, and there was a very contentious election, and there were a number of hate crimes that were occurring, and what I was getting from folks over and over again was, I don't know how to think about this, much less verbalize what I'm seeing happening around me. And so it was this moment for me of, well, you said you needed a new confession, so Mm -hmm. you should try to make this happen. And so I reached out to Glenn, who I knew would be insane enough to to at least talk to me about this. (laughs) Um, And uh, then Glenn said, I really think you should take this to Next Church, uh, which is a a group of folks within the PCUSA and expanding beyond the PCUSA, uh, but within our denomination who are, are seriously thinking about what is next for the church. And so I had an opportunity to meet with several of the leaders in Next and just explain to them what my hopes were for this, that it was my hope that we could uh, give people an opportunity to think through what was happening around them through a theological lens and give them some language to articulate what was happening. It was such a new thing for so many folks mm-hmm. um, to be in 
this time of just division and rancor and a time when um, truth seemed to be optional and a time whenever uh, you had neighbors who were personally afraid of, of what the world was, what was going on in the world and down the street from them. So I uh, reached out to Glenn and some of the folks with Next, and sure enough, they said, yeah, let's do this. We'll put together, we'll reach out to some folks who we think might be good to help us do this. Um, and so I worked with them, and we came up with a list of folks, and uh, we needed a place to meet. And First Press Sarasota said, come on down here and do this. So we gathered together for one weekend in January and wrote the statement and then worked on refining it over the next couple months. Uh, but pretty much pounded through a first draft of the statement uh, in about less than 48 hours. So is that because it came easily to you? Um, it was just something that was all in your hearts and you just, it just happened? I suspect it was because of the beach. Or was it because <laughs> of the very nice warmness? <laughs> all of the above. No, it, um, so we were very cognizant of the fact that we, that the clock was ticking. One of the untold stories is that the the weekend we were all flying in, um, Sarasota was under tornado warnings. So a number of us got in the night before we were supposed to start riding uh, and did some work together. But there were two folks, I think it was Bertram Johnson and Cindy Rigby, who either slept in the Atlanta airport or <laughs> Stayed up. I can't remember what their story was, but the tornado basically grounded their flight. So they rolled in very early the next morning, very travel weary. Um, and it was just this sense of, okay, everyone, everyone had travel delays. It was just a mess getting there. So I think it kind of helped set the tone for us of, okay, we fought this hard to get here. We need to walk out of here with something. Um, and so we just, we just worked through it and we worked through it individually and as a team together. Um, to try to put together the three main parts that you see here. This finished form structure that you see for the Sarasota Statement is not what we walked away with in completion. There were some parts where we were like, we're going to have to revisit this and work on this. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, we, 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 uh, we worked through it. And so I think it was um, a lot of us were feeling some of the same things in the room. I think a lot of us have been fielding a lot of the same questions from folks. And so some of it did come very naturally, but... And, and the way that some folks cast this was, oh, this is the progressive church just putting out, you know, this liberal manifesto. And it wasn't. I mean, the folks who were in the room really wanted to be careful. There was um, one person in particular whose uh, parents are much more conservative than they are. And they said, I, when I walk out of here, I should not have alienated my parents. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was something that really um, stayed at the forefront of our minds while we did this, that this was to give whoever read it, hopefully language, regardless of where they were politically, theologically. Um, and so I know that 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 is not how everyone's approached it um, in terms of folks who have picked it up and read it. But that that was the hope. That's fantastic. So I have um, a couple of questions. First question uh, about some of the content in this. And you can Google just just Google the Sarasota Statement and you can find a copy of it in its entirety. It'll be linked on our website, villagepresya.org, too. Um, if you go to Theology Thursdays, you'll be able to find it there. But um, find this. It, it gives good language uh, and clarity into these days that we are continuing to live in, um, these chaotic days. Uh, but the, the preamble of the statement 
uh, kind of ends with the sentence. It says, we address this statement directly to all whom the church has harmed in recognition and apology as we vow to do and be better with God's help. We haven't looked at any other confessions that are addressed specifically to to those for whom the church is harmed. Uh, that's a different kind of nuanced thing. Tell me about that. There was a lot of conversation about that uh, very early on as to what this should be, um, that it could be a confession and not necessarily have to look like all the other confessions. And I think the prevailing sentiment in the room was there are people who need to hear from the church right now, mm-hmm. who need to hear from a church who say, you know, I understand that people are attacking you because of where you're from or because of who you worship. But And I understand that they had to call themselves Christians, but there are Christians out there who aren't in line with that, who aren't on board with this. And it was a recognition, even if um, we had not been actively a part of that, that uh, the ground was still, you know, the ground was still fertile for that to take root in large because of silence mm-hmm. of, of folks who should have been speaking up. And so I, I know for me personally, I'm one of the people who entered the room thinking, boy, I have just lived in this, this white male, straight man privilege world. And I have never felt like some of these things were my fights to fight. And that was my mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I am not the only one who walked in with, with feelings of, I have not done what I needed to do here. Much less fulfill my call as a pastor. I have not done what I need to do here to make sure that my neighbors have a good world to live in. Um, and so it just kind of evolved in the conversations of why don't we just talk to the people who we want to really address here? We, we feel like we can do this in a way in which if you are not one of these groups that are named under each of the three parts, it's still for you. But we want you to know that this is who we're talking to uh, and it it made it this very personal dialogue. It reshaped the conversation from what do we need, what do we need to say in the confession to what would we want to say to these folks? What Mm -hmm. do we feel like we should be saying? And so as you go through, when you look at it and it moves from belief um, to grief, to commitment, it was a sense of if we were, if we were sitting across from someone and they were to say, so this happened, repeatedly and actually happened in Sarasota. I think either right before we got there, or right after we left, but, um, a swastika, uh, drawn on a synagogue. Mm-hmm. And it was, what would you want to say to that community? Who's grieving that? Who's mm-hmm. uncertain? How would you, what would you actually want to say to them? And so reframing it in that way, man, it just, it, it really, it put me in a very different headspace than I thought I was going to be in for that. Like mm-hmm. I came ready with, um, you know, the, the book of confessions and I was just ready just to talk, Oh, and this is what's going on in the second Helvetic confession. And here's a weird lesson. And, um, while we did that, that was not the, the primary part of it. It was, what do we need to do to be faithful to Christ in this moment? Um, and actually give our neighbors a word of hope that acknowledges the ways in which we have failed, but in the ways in which God does not. Mm. That's good. This is good stuff. So a question about the grief. So yeah. some of our confessions, um, some of our confessions historically name things that we believe and things that we reject. But rather than using rejection language here, you use grief language. I'm assuming that was a choice. That was very much a choice. <laughs> yes, Hallie, that's a great assumption. <laughs> um, Didn't someone do it? And that was, I'm, I'm very thankful to say, I walked into the room thinking we need to do, we need to go the Barman route. So the Theological Declaration of Barman um, is, 
I know that you've had discussions about which one really influenced you. That one really influenced me. The one that um, is specifically written to address the rise of the Third Reich. Before we have Nazi Germany and concentration camps, that there were a group of people who came together and said, this is dangerous and we need mm. to speak against this now. Mm. Uh, it was already too late in some sense, but in another, we hadn't even seen the full horror of the Third Reich yet. Mm. That declaration, that theological declaration has a long stuck with me. In fact, um, whenever we got everyone together, everyone was like, do, do you really think we can walk out of the room with something finished? And the story behind the Barman Declaration is that Karl Barth, who's a Reformed theologian, met with two Lutheran theologians, um, and their intent was to write this confession together. They met together. They had lunch. They, I think Bart describes it as smoking strong cigars <laughs> and had a couple of drinks. And the Lutherans went and took a nap and Bart wrote like 95% of the <laughs> Barman Declaration. And so uh, I said when everybody got in the room, I really have to believe there were eight of us in the room whenever we were kind of at our maximum. I said, um, I really have to believe that eight of us sober is equal to one drunk bar. Like I really, I really have to believe that we can do this in this moment. So it really influenced just the confidence that we could do it, at least for me. Did you pull out some cigars and we, you know, we did not, we did not, uh, smoke cigars, believe it or not. We did not, you know, some, I think it's because we did it in a church library. Mm. I don't know that yeah, they, I think they frown yeah. upon things like that, like smoking a stogie. Probably a sign for that. <laughs> probably a sign. My guess is you're right. <laughs> but the Mormon Declaration uses that language of affirming and rejecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had walked in just very intent of, man, we've just got to do this. Um, and there were just so many folks who said, okay, that's important, but we also have to take ownership of our part of that. Mm. And that, again, reframed it because it was around this conversation of with a neighbor and, and what have I done to fail my neighbor? Um, so that it was not just a matter of finger wagging and you're on the wrong side of this. And so we reject it, reject you. Yeah. We reject what you believe. Um, we grieve the ways in which every single one of us has failed. And we've all got different ways in which we failed in this. Mm-hmm. But we need to grieve that. And so there were the conversation then shifted to, was well, it grief or lament? And we had a long conversation mm-hmm. around what the best word was there. Uh, and I think we ended up on grief, just a sense of lamentation is almost paralyzing. Um, that when we lament, when we are weeping, when we sorrow, that it can almost be paralyzing. And that that was not what the moment called for. The moment called for us to grieve the things that we had done, um, but to move forward as well. So, uh, so yeah, it was very intentional to use the language of grief, both to not use the affirming and rejecting language, but also not to use language that was just like, oh, we messed it all up. Let's just burn it all down and start all over again. Right. Um, And so, yeah, that was really intentional. Mm. I'm going to read just a little part of this. We have some, context of what this of what this sounds like so uh this begins in part one it says to the people we ignore reject or demonize for living outside the tribes we claim Hmm. we trust our lord and savior who calls disciples to love unconditionally who confronts brutality by refusing to take arms and who defies racism by forming a community out of every tribe people and nation Jesus aligns with people who are poor, meek, persecuted, and reviled, and calls the church to do the same. To be a Christian is to be continuously undone and remade by a Savior who encounters us in the ways we might not expect through a collection of people we might otherwise reject, screen, or censor. 
We grieve the ways in which we create division between people whom Christ has created for community. We grieve that we have segregated and broken our communities along worldly constructs of race, class, ideology, and belief. We commit to move beyond like-minded choruses that reinforce our biases, joining the community that reflects God's grace, Christ's kingdom, and the Spirit's action. We commit to reject and resist all racist practices, however explicit or subtle. We commit to, to dismantle white supremacy, including societal structures that maintain and protect white privilege. We defy attempts to target and ostracize fellow human beings on the basis of blood and soil. Damn. So the parts of this confession follow this belief, grief, and commitment. So the commitment part through the through the historical confessions, there's and especially into the more Americanized confession, there's there's always talk of the work, the work mm. that needs to be done, um, which I'm reading as this commitment part that um, you're not just talking about it, but there's things that will be practiced along with it. Yeah, that was really important. One of the one of the conversations that was really interesting. The first day we were there together, um, a couple of folks felt like. Why are, why are we doing this? Why don't we just actually issue like a call for action? And that was one of the conversations we sat around. Uh, I remember sitting around uh, outside of Glenn Bell's house and uh, <laughs> all of us sitting around talking, debating what we needed to spend our next day doing together. Um, and, and I remember going to bed that night thinking, oh, we might not actually write a confession. Like we, that might not be what we end up doing here. This, this is just totally outside of the realm of what I thought was going to happen. It was a sense when we got back together that next morning of what is it going to be about? And it was this universally shared sentiment in the room of if we are just committing words to a page, uh, while it's important to give folks language, while it's important to give folks a way to frame this theologically, if we are just going to do that, if we're not going to get real specific about the ways in which we need to change as people, Mm -hmm. then we have not done the work to use your language, that the confessions talk about doing. You know, part of it, and I think this is just the truth of it, Presbyterians are not in a place um, where the confessions, where, where the, the work that's named in the confessions is something that folks know about. Folks don't walk around talking about the great ends of the church, right? It's only when you go to seminary that you hear language like that. And so it was a sense of we need to actually provide what that work might look like. Um, and so a commitment to undoing anything that not only furthers, but that, uh, just protects privilege, right? So, so I can't tell you exactly what that looks like in your context, but I can tell you in your context that needs to happen, mm-hmm. right? More than likely things that are mentioned here, um, are things that, that are negatively affecting the world in which you live. So mm-hmm. let's really uh, drill down on some of these. And so those commitment sections that I remember correctly, we're just amalgams of ideas of what do we, what are, what are the things we really need to get at here? And so what you see remaining are kind of the core of, of where our concern was for, okay, you've read the statement. We hope that it will compel you to some kind of action. Here are some possibilities as to what that could look like for you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that commitment was a very intentional expanding of to your, to your reference to the confessions of the work of the people. This is how we see the work of the people in this moment. And that's the thing with a confession. That's what's really important about a confession. It is meant to be time bound. Mm. It is meant to be time bound. So none of us walk into this thinking, 
we have just written the next Nicene Creed, right? <laughs> like no one walks into the room thinking that's what we're doing. Years from now. It is, it is, this may be good for six months. It may be good for six years. We don't know, but we're going to try to address what's happening now. So friends, if you haven't yet, uh, subscribe to uh, Millennial Ministry on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or find us online at villagepresya.org. Uh, we are grateful to the Reverend Dr. Brandon Frick for being with us today and uh, give a shout out to uh, Glenn Bell. I was part of his, one of their first Pres Sarasota's uh, pastor studies and it was That's fantastic. Right. Uh, and my friend Katie Baker, who helped write this confession. Hi, Katie. <laughs> and hey, we, Katie. W- <laughs> we will see you again next time.